0: Our message from today is from 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I hope that you'll open your Bible to 1 Timothy, chapter 2, perhaps even pause here and make sure that you have your Bible. I think one of the real dangers as we endure this pandemic is that we could easily find ourselves disconnected not only from the fellowship of each other, but also from the Word of God, which makes me think of John, chapter 6. Now that's the passage where a great many people turn their back and leave Jesus, at which point Jesus turns to His disciples and He asks them, do you want to leave too? Which strikes me as an incredible thing for Jesus to ask. I have been a Christian for many years. I have certainly watched people leave the church and leave the faith. I have watched people leave Jesus and turn their backs on Him. I have never turned to someone else after someone does something like that and asked another person are you gonna leave too? I suppose I've wondered that, but I've never outright asked it. And I think, to a certain extent, in the middle of this pandemic, uh, that question does weigh heavily on my mind with regards to the disjointed and difficult uh, fellowship that we're uh, missing here and and in some ways trying to endure. How will we respond to all of this? Uh, Will we have the faith and the obedience to open our Bibles, to worship in our homes, including reading, hymns, prayer? Uh, Will we with faith and obedience open our Bibles and do these things? Will we cling to the Lord and worship uh, even while we mourn the tragedy of losing our assembly for a time on Sundays? Or will we leave Jesus? Will we abandon our posts in the church, which is his body where he's placed us? Will we abandon his word? Will we abandon our brothers and our sisters? Will we abandon our worship, true, unadulterated, humble worship and prayer? In John chapter 6, when Jesus asks His disciples, do you want to leave too? Peter replied, verse 68 of that chapter, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Notice it's not His love for Jesus that he references. Surely he did love Jesus, but our feelings of love will sometimes be faint. Nor is it his own personal devotion, his own personal resolve that decides the moment for Peter. Now, human resolve is a fickle thing. It's certainly not dependable. I've watched men and women turn their backs on promises that they've made that were meant to last a lifetime, and I have watched men and women turn their backs on responsibilities and simple things that should be trivial to uphold for the, for the sake of a little temporary money or a little temporary rest. Human resolve will not win the day for you now, Christian. Now Peter does not depend upon these things in his reply to Jesus, but instead he answers in desperation, Lord, there is nowhere else to go. Your words, your words alone. Our words of life. Ours is a desperate condition. A very sad condition when you think about it. We try very hard not to think about it, don't we? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 is a verse that I want to point to. Again and again this morning. Hebrews nine twenty-seven. It says, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Of this quickly coming death and judgment. We try very hard not to concern ourselves. Instead, let's think about the vacation that we'd like to go on, the one that we're preparing for. Let's think about the children that we have, what they're involved with, the family that we either have or would one day like to have. Let's think of the show that I'd like to watch, the sport that I'd love to play. Let me think about the next thing on the horizon. And all of us lacking lacking anything fun, anything interesting to divert ourselves with will instead turn sometimes to the most basic distractions, to avoid the contemplation of spiritual things. Give me something good to eat. Give me something good to drink. Let me watch something. Entertain me with something. Anything but the quietness of my own personal reflection and the question, the question of whether or not God is pleased with the condition of my soul, of this sorry state of spiritual status, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which we all once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit, the devil, who now works in the sons of disobedience. Let me ask you, is there any question behind the rise of pornography that our fallen world has so desperately Uh, come captivated by. Is there any question as to whether this comes from a spirit of righteousness and goodness or a satanic embrace of the most basic animalistic instincts that all men and women should learn to restrain rather than be dominated by? That's what pornography does. It dominates the mind. It takes something that was meant to be precious and enjoyed within the confines of marriage and it treats it as if it's something so easily consumable that anyone can dial it up on the merest whim is there any question what spirit is behind our infatuation with nudity and nakedness with sensuality so that our celebrities are eager to strip down in front of cameras trading in that which has been created to be shared only within the confines and the covenant of marriage in order to capitalize on fame and money and influence in order to trade it in for a little bit of our fleeting attention span These movements and those that are like them are not the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, but they are, as Paul writes, the work of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, and he is working. It is a satanic movement, carefully leading men and women further into debauchery until they can no longer even feel the guilt and shame of their own consciousness. What they knew they should not do at ten, disrobe, they can't come to terms with at forty, So numb have we become to the work of Satan in our world that we barely bat an eye at it anymore. It permeates everything that we see and do. And it is the evil at work in this world of which Paul writes, continuing in Ephesians 2, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. What a phrase children of wrath that is the wrath that we would experience after our death under the judgment of god again hebrews 9:27 warns us it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment and in that judgment there is not a one of us that would escape we would be found guilty before god guilty as sinners and experience the wrath of god eternally as due penalty due penalty of our error of our sin but God, Paul writes in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. That's where we would be children of wrath, but God. And to my mind, there are no uh, sweeter words that have ever been written in the Bible. We were all by nature children of wrath, just as the others, but God. And then listen to what he writes. Who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you're saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Your salvation has nothing to do with your own good deeds. It's the gift of God that no one should boast. Why do we not leave the Lord Jesus? Peter replied, Where else would we go? In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that same Peter preaches, Now listen, Salvation exists in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Your words, the word of God, exemplified and spoken in Christ, These words carried forth by the apostles in the New Testament, in the text, and the letters of the Bible, the collection of books we call the Bible, these are the words of life. Now, from those words, I'll read to you just a few verses. Now, here it is, 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul writes to us, I desire that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Now, the first application point of the passage that I want to make to you this morning is this. The passage assumes a right understanding of the church assembly. Let me say that again. The passage assumes that you understand the importance of the church assembly. In a moment, we will come to the specific instructions by Paul, but please note the instructions make no sense at all if people of the church do not assemble together. Hear me clearly. There is no reading of the Bible, absolutely no reading of the Bible, that assumes even the possibility that a person might possibly be a Christian and not assemble with other Christians around them. That is not a concept from God, nor is it permitted in His Word. Think about the New Testament. Now, the New Testament is our foundation for what our faith is. Apart from the New Testament, we know nothing of Christ, nothing of Jesus, nothing of Christianity. So, let's think about the New Testament. The New Testament is a collection of books beginning with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these Gospels, these good news stories tell us of a Jewish Messiah rejected by his own people who then died on the cross for the sins of the world rather than just the sins of Israel. Then he rose from the grave and his message upon rising from the grave is to tell his disciples, go now into all nations, not just the cities of Israel, but all cities and preach the Gospel message. Jesus even gives the instructions before he dies of how the church that would follow was supposed to operate after his death. While he is alive, before the church is established, he is laying down instructions for the church on how it should operate when he is no longer with them. So we have the Gospels, and they lay down the story of the Messiah who died to bring the church into existence. This church is the ecclesia That's the Greek word church in the New Testament. Those who are called out of the world, and they're not just called out of the world into space or wandering ether. They're called out of the world into fellowship with God together with each other. They are the church, not an individual called out. They are a people called out. Then we have, following the Gospels, the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tells how God acted following the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what is God doing as he acts? He is establishing churches all over the known world. Missionary trips are being taken. People are being converted. And everywhere these missionaries go, churches are established as God acts to set up this ecclesia, this people called out to serve him in all these various places. It's amazing what God does in Acts. It's God working, not for the sake of demonstrating merely His own power. It's God working to demonstrate His love for people as He calls them out of the world and into these churches, representing the full church, those all called out to God. Following the book of Acts in the New Testament, we have nine letters from Paul. Nine letters. They are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Nine books of the Bible, every one of them letters. And who are the letters written to? They are written to churches. They are written to churches, not to individuals. They're not written to individual Christians. They're not to be distributed to individual Christians. They are written to communities of faithful believers in these places where God has acted. This is not written to Christians. The Bible is not written to Christians living on some spiritual island because they don't want to assemble with other Christians. They want to instead focus on their own internal spirituality. That is not Christianity. That is mysticism. That is the stuff of self-help gurus. That's not Christianity that's not what the Bible teaches no the Christian Bible consists largely of God's message to his people together to churches and it tells them how to live together it tells them how to worship together it tells them how to love each other because that is not easy to do on this world I'm a sinner you're a sinner And if we're going to live in harmony with one another for the glory of God on this earth, we're going to need instruction on how to do this. It tells them how to forgive each other. It tells these churches how to be righteous. It instructs them on how to have pastors. It instructs them on how they should behave towards pastors, what the Christian's role is to their pastor, what the pastor's role is to them. It tells them how they should have deacons. It tells them how to deal with sin among the collective group. Because we're supposed to be in a collective group. And after these nine letters, there are three letters to pastors in the Bible. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Then you get to the letter of Philemon, which is written to an individual, dot, dot, dot. And the church that meets in his house. You have the letter to the Hebrew people, the book which we call Hebrews, which it says in chapter 12 of verse 23, to the general assembly and church. You have the book of James, counseling Christians to call for their elders of the church. Chapter 5, verse 14. You have the letters of Peter written from his post, pastoring the churches, he says, which is in Babylon. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. The letters of John in which he writes, I wrote unto the church. And then after all this, what, you have the book of Jude, and you come to the book of Revelation. And what do you see in Revelation? You see the revelation, not of all of John's visions, no, no, no. Those all culminate in one thing, the revelation. It's not revelations plural with an S. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 1, you see Jesus And he is standing amongst the lampstand of his churches. And he is depicted as holding the stars which are the pastors of the churches in his hand. And immediately following are chapters 2 and 3 which are Jesus' letters, Jesus' words to the seven churches. Now all of this work I submit to you now. For your consideration and presentation to others. That there is no acknowledgement of Christianity in the Bible outside of that which is practiced in the right fellowship of the Christian church. And that assembly, that coming together of God's people into one place of worship and teaching, now listen, that assembly cannot be replaced by Christian books or Christian music or Christian audio or video, even as I do this now. It cannot be replaced by internet connections. That assembly is a holy thing. And as a holy thing, it cannot be replicated by worldly technology. I mourn in my heart right now as I'm doing this. This is not normal. This is not what I want. This is not what I want to be doing. I'm here in an empty room. Here, only with my wife, I mourn in my heart that we cannot have together what is holy, what we are called to, what is good, that we cannot assemble. In the Old Testament, Daniel, you've heard of Daniel. He mourned the very same thing in his heart as he longed for the return of God's people to Israel because they were in captivity and they were separated from the temple, and they were separated from assembly, and they were separated from worship. And Daniel rejected the cheap imitations of worship offered to him among the paganism of Babylon. He rejected it. Instead, he spent his life in mourning for what he never saw happen in his lifetime, but which upon his death he was returned to in fellowship with God. I mourn too. And for as long as we have to do this, I will mourn and long for the day when we can assemble as we have done together for many years now. The church of the living God. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 is clear that the expectation of Christian people is that they will assemble together. And when they do, there are simple instructions. It won't take us long to go through them. Now, here they are. For the men, one, they should pray everywhere. Oftentimes I have found that the men in the assembly of the church are the least willing to show any outward sign of humble worship. They stand there stiff, sometimes head down, mumbling the songs and the prayers, They are often the least willing to show any sign of emotion. They are often the least willing to lift up a voice in song, to lift up a hand in prayer, or to demonstrate anything but attentiveness at best and disinterest at worst. Let me tell you something. There is nothing more pathetic than a man who says he is a Christian and would obviously rather be anywhere else in the world But among the assembly of God's people. There is nothing more pathetic than that. Here, Paul tells men that they are to pray, all of them, which is what the word everywhere in the text means. It's not just certain men in certain places that are to pray, it is all men everywhere. It is an indictment of the leadership of any man in any home among his family if his voice there is not heard in prayer. That's not leadership. You can be really good at teaching your son how to throw and catch a ball. You can be really good at subjecting your children to obedience or making them love you. It is not leadership called upon by a Christian man if his voice is not heard praying all places everywhere in his home. It is is an indictment of the men of the church if they are not actively participating in prayer, which by way includes those prayers offered as hymns to God. Many of our hymns that we sing, if you listen to the words and think about what you're singing, are prayers to God. How could you not participate in that? Paul tells them, one, that they are to pray everywhere, two, to lift holy hands. Now, the custom of the Jewish synagogues for centuries was that men would lift their hands in prayer, palms to the sky, and it's likely that since the early church began predominantly as a Jewish movement in recognition of their true crucified and risen Messiah, it's probable that this Jewish custom had been adopted in the early church, and frankly, the better for it. But the emphasis here is not primarily on one's hands, it's the idea of holy hands, as Paul writes. We have learned all too well and have been repeatedly advised that there is nothing innately holy about our hands, haven't we? The advice that you hear from every direction in the world right now is to uniformly wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, because they are not clean. And here Paul is saying that our offering of prayer, be it with hands up or hands down, means very little apart from the holiness that should accompany that prayer. Holiness, when used as an adjective like this, means separated when men pray toward God they should be separated from sin by repentance and faith in Christ and the nature of their prayer should be an acknowledgement of this separation holiness is not self attained it's not as simple as soap and water it is a condition of the heart and mind brought about by the work of God in one's life after salvation holiness which is perhaps the difficulty of some men holiness is to adorn our hearts in prayer and I think that the real issue that some men have when it comes to praying and singing to God can be understanding the difficulty that some men have to embrace true holiness in this world that we live in. It's not easy to be holy unto God and to set aside the natural desire of the flesh and mind. Men, if you struggle with that, you should call on God's help and embrace the call to holiness, righteousness, righteousness. Three, this Paul tells men that they should be praying everywhere and in all places, absent two things. The first is wrath, the second is doubting. I have read, unfortunately, of modern-day Christian teachers who say that it's okay to pray angry prayers towards God, that we should not suppress our anger when difficult things are happening in our lives. I have even read, if you can believe it, men who say that in dire circumstances, they should not even withhold themselves from using cursing and profanity in their prayers when their heart is overwhelmed toward God. Foolishness. Teachers like this would find a friend in Job's wife who counseled him in his suffering. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Nevertheless, the words of Job were unchanged. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed, not cursed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To which the following verdict is rendered in the verse that follows toward Job. In all this, he did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. There is no place for wrath in our prayer. He has put away his wrath against us at the cross of Jesus. There is no place for wrath toward him. We are also not to doubt. Now, telling men not to doubt is a bit like telling people not to breathe. It would be supernatural for a man to live without breathing. It would be supernatural for a man to have faith without doubting. Praise God that by his spirit we are afforded supernatural means. In James 1.6, we are warned that when a man asks God for something, wisdom in the case of James, uh, he should ask in faith, quote, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now listen, there is no deeper failing of a man of God, a man called to lead his family in worship, in prayer, in conduct, a man called to work and serve God in his community by loving and serving others, there is no deeper failing of a man of God than to carry himself in faithlessness, disbelieving the very God whom he purports to serve. It's only natural to have doubts. They creep in often and uninvited. But when those doubts attack the character and nature of God, we must fight them off. We should bolster our resolve with the repeated declaration of God's good intention toward us. God loves me. He is not against me. He is for me. He will save me. His promises are real. When a man doubts, he must confront those doubts with the strength of a warrior marching into a battle, for there is no greater warfare than the spiritual warfare of his soul. He must meet the enemy with unflinching courage that God is good. He has declared his love for me. I will not pay him the insult of doubting him. That's the kind of men that every man should strive to be, praying everywhere without ceasing being holy in their presentation of prayer, without wrath, without doubting. Now, that's Paul's instructions to men in the preliminary sense, and then we come to verse 9. A few introductory instructions for the women in Ephesus, where Timothy is pastoring. He writes, In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but, which is proper for women professing godliness, with good works. If the men of Ephesus were failing to pray, praying improperly with anger, improperly with doubts, it seems that the women were failing in their own way, and so Paul is encouraging Timothy on how to deal with it, specifically failing in their preparation for worship. Men in our day and age are not above the same failure, as no shortage of televangelists will provide evidence of. There were some apparently dressing immodestly. The Greek word used here for modest has sexual implications, which means the way some women were dressing was revealing and provocative, which is certainly the opposite of modesty and what women according and professing godliness should strive for. It's common in our world today to hear people suggest that women who are truly empowered are women who are comfortable taking their clothes off. It is increasingly difficult for the world to produce any female celebrity who has not taken her turn at disrobing in front of a camera. This is satanic. It is the opposite of empowering. It does not make me angry at the women. It makes me angry at the spirit of this world that has deceived them this might give the illusion of power to a woman, power over fear, power over caution and uncertainty, power over shame, but that is all it achieves, an illusion. Women are not freed from the lasting power of fear and shame in any meaningful way by taking their clothes off. Freedom from these things are found only in uniting oneself to God who is powerful and who can free you from the fear of doubt and shame, who covers our shame with the forgiveness of our sins and holds our very lives in His hand. That is the confidence to live every day. That is the confidence that a Christian can have peace with, not in their ability to disrobe, not in their ability to suppress anxiety over their physical presentation. The sensuality and sexuality of man has its only righteous expression toward the wife whom he has sworn himself to in the covenant of marriage till death do us part. I am yours. And The same is true for the sexuality of a woman. Dressing provocatively with a mind toward showing off the sexual appeal of one's physical appearance is certainly not worthy of the assembly of God's people, and it is certainly not the point. Now that question begs another How should we dress for the assembly then? And Paul simply says, with propriety and moderation. He asks, well, what is appropriate? The word propriety in the Greek is the word meaning shame or honor. In other words, when we come before God, we are all coming before a being who is greater than all of us, a being, if you will, whose splendor puts us to shame. We should dress then in that manner as if we are coming before a being whose splendor puts us to shame. We should not dress in such a manner as to put others around us to shame. We are coming before a God who puts us to shame. We shouldn't dress in such a way as to flaunt our bodies in such a way that would put others to shame. Now, following this up, Paul has these words. Don't dress, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, listen. Listen. The scandal of the church is that it unites all people together as brothers and sister under God. We are all children of God. That's what the church purported in a very Roman, separated, culturally divided world. Race is not supposed to separate the Christian. Money is not supposed to separate the Christian. Wealth, power is not supposed to separate the Christian. There are poor and there are rich. There are weak and there are strong. There are men and there are women. There is black, there is white. There is everything in between, all under the same umbrella of of this new citizenship that we have in heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done for us at the cross. That is the scandal of the Christian church. And in these worship services where there is no differentiation between slave nor free, Roman citizen or foreigner, in this scandal of the Christian church, no one was to receive preferential treatment. These are the instructions that are in all those letters I mentioned in the Bible earlier. No one was supposed to sit in a special place. No one was supposed to receive communion before someone else. No one was supposed to have preferential treatment, but some following the custom of the day, would make a show of their superior position in the world, even though they couldn't have the special treatment. Ah, if I can't have the the proper recognition by means of, of special treatment inside the church, then I will exercise my superiority in some other way. So instead, they would demonstrate their superiority by weaving their hair in elaborate braids, dressing, inexpensive clothing and clothing was the great was the great sign of wealth of the day you know today it's someone driving up in their Mercedes Benz or someone driving up in their fancy car or someone living in their fancy house or whatever else the signs of wealth might look like it's not hard to find them back then the clothing was the sign of wealth in the ancient day and they would weave pearls and precious metals into their hair into these elaborate displays So what you might end up with is a pastor like me standing up in front of a church telling people, hey, we're all the family of God. There will be no preferential treatment. What matters is your humble service to the Lord, and the kingdom of heaven will be ordered as such. And while he's preaching that message in the congregation in front of him, there are certain women wearing clothing and jewelry that would cost a lifetime or several lifetimes worth of money, and on the other side of the congregation, there's a woman wearing the only set of clothing that she has on her own back, the same set of clothing that she, she wears in her home, the same set of clothing that she does her work with, the same set of clothing that she goes to the well with, she's wearing in church because it's all that she has. Contrasted with the woman over here in the elaborate display of superiority and wealth that could be not only unmatched but unfathomable to the person over here. It does it injustice to say that it was merely a distraction. It was entirely inappropriate. Verse 10 says, But adorn yourselves with that which is proper for women who profess godliness. Adorn yourself with good works. Now this is the key. Are you listening? This is the key. What is proper for church? What is appropriate for church? It is appropriate that Christian women and Christian men adorn themselves with godliness and good works. That is the clothing of a Christian. Listen to this. Job 29.14 I put on righteousness and it clothed me. Isaiah 61.10 I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with the robe of righteousness. We are not to dress for the assembly of the church in an attempt to demonstrate our superiority or our sexual appeal or our riches or our high social status. We are to prepare for the assembly of the church In every single way, with what we wear, with what we think, with what we sing, with what we do, we are to prepare for the assembly of church with reverence to God as people who want to be identified not with sexual appeal or great wealth. When people think of me, I don't want them, and certainly they won't, to think of how appealing and attractive he is. I don't want them to think about how wealthy I am. I don't want them to think about how how powerful I am and the position that I've reached in society. When people look at me, I want them to see my identity with the cross of Jesus Christ, with the godliness that he has purchased for me and clothed me with, which are on display through good Christian conduct, good Christian works. And so Paul tells these people, Timothy, you've got to tell them, have them adorn their lives with good works because that's enough. It's more than enough. That's everything. All the wealth is dust to dust and ashes to ashes. All the sensuality is is, is susceptible to decay and vulnerability. Clothe yourselves in something more than that. How can Paul say this? What is so powerful in the life that we live to upend the social structures that hold wealth as something almost deified? What great power exists in the world that we live in To compete with the power of sexual attraction what great power could possibly compete with the pride of a man and the stubbornness of a man who will refuse to bow his head and lift up his hands in prayer to any God let alone the God of all creation what great power is this and the answer is Jesus 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 does all of this In Jesus, we have the wealthiest being in existence, the creator and owner of our universe, humbled into the form of a simple man, Philippians 2, and finding himself the great king of the earth in the form of a simple man, he became obedient to the will of God even to the point of death on a cross, Philippians 2. And there is Jesus, the most magnificent being in the world, allowing himself to be beaten and scourged by weak and lowly men, allowing that to happen. And there is Jesus, the most exalted being in the universe, stumbling under the weight of a cross. And there is Jesus, with all the power of God, Exhausted and suffering, as they nail down his limbs in crucifixion and raise him up so that he will suffer and die. And why? Why this injustice? Why this, this surrender on the part of the Lord? Because it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto man once to die and after that judgment followed by Hebrews 9.28 Now listen. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto their salvation. The assembly of God's people together is precious only because it was bought with precious blood this is not a place for prideful withdrawal of men who refuse to sing or pray this is not a place for bitterness or anger at the trouble of one's life this is no place for doubting and disbelief nor is it a place for the demonstration of extravagant wealth sexual appeal or displays of superior social class we are all sheep who have gone astray, says Isaiah, from the richest to the poorest, from the most attractive to the least attractive. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So here is my closing plea with you. Let us behave when we return to our assembly together, knowing that truth, and worshiping our holy God who loves us and who has given a son to die for us. So that we might be saved. Now I'm going to pray. Dear Heavenly Father. I miss all of your people. As difficult as it is. You know that my heart is sincere when I say I believe this time of separation for us is important. Father, if I'm wrong, show me the error. If this is your will, continue to give me peace. Father, you know the burden of my heart that men and women will worship rightly on your day, on the Lord's day, on Sunday. You know my concern that they just turn the assembly of your people together into a television show. By switching something on. What a poor imitation for something, something holy that cannot be replicated that way. No, help us to turn the television off. Give us the courage to get on our own hands and knees, even if it is nothing but silence around us, even if the room is entirely empty, and to pray to you because you are holy and you desire for all men to pray everywhere. Help us to pray, as Paul says, with petitions, with supplications, with intercessions. Help us to pray without ceasing, but help us to pray audibly. Let our children see that the spiritual existence of our soul is not wrapped up in what's on a screen in front of us or a stage in front of us, but that we will worship because we are called to do so. Father, let that be the cry of our hearts. Don't let our children be hoodwinked into thinking that there is some substitute to be found on the Internet for the assembly of your people. Help parents, help widows, help people who are alone and people who are together to get on their hands and knees before you on your day tomorrow morning and to worship you, to sing to you, to sing not quietly, but as loud as they possibly can, to lift up praise to you in a way that that all the angels of heaven will find admirable. Father, with your spirit, draw us into worship. I pray for my own children and my wife and myself help us to open your word and even from the one who feels least qualified to at the bare minimum read loudly And with confidence, even if every other word is a stumble, if every other word is a hiccup, if we must start over five times and we mispronounce half the passage, help us to read and read and read it again until we understand through bitter strain that it may be what you have said for us and what you would want from us and what you would want of us now in this time. And then let's close in prayer. Let's close in humility. Let's close with a sense of mourning that although we have worshipped, we have not done what we long to do. Assemble with your full people. and Father, let all of heaven be sweet as we think of the day when we will all assemble together with those who have long gone before us. Protect us now. Save the lost. Turn us into the light that you'd have us be.